0: I want to begin with a question this morning, and the question is this. Do you ever feel inadequate, like you don't measure up, like you're not enough? You're not man enough, or you're not mom enough, or you're not strong enough, you're not tough enough, or you're not a good enough student, or a good enough employee, or a good enough boss, or a good enough leader, or a good enough athlete? honest, I think we all feel that way sometimes, don't we? Even the most secure in our midst often deals with profound sense of inadequacy, where we don't feel like enough. And so when we don't feel like enough, what do we do? Uh, Many of us, and what our world might have us do, is to prop up our sense of self-confidence. Saying things like, you are enough, or you're strong, you are beautiful, and dang it, people like you. I don't know if you guys have ever get, got the inspirational memes that all across your social media feed, but you are enough, you are stronger, you, you, you can do all these things. Or maybe you need to view yourself like that little kitten who sees in this reflection a tiger. And the secret to overcoming our feelings of inadequacy is to just view ourselves differently. Now, I think there's something to positive self-talk. Uh, there are constant negative images and messages that we bombard ourselves with. But can I give you some better news today? Jesus is enough. So you don't have to be. Jesus is enough. So you don't have to be. And that's the big idea this morning. There's not going to be a ton of practical application. My heart is that you would see Jesus rightly. And when you see him rightly, you would come to this beautiful conclusion that he is enough. And so you're set free. So, Psalm 110, here we go. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Pastor Kyle, you are nuts. There's 150 Psalms, and this is the one you picked? I mean, we could be talking about how the Lord is our shepherd right now from Psalm 23. We could talk about how the skies declare the glory of God, and the heavens proclaim the work of his hands we could even be talking about Psalm 139 and how God shaped and formed us in the inward parts of our mother's womb and he didn't make any accidents and he knows all of our days from the, before they began. Or we could at least look at the, the blessed man from Psalm 1 and how he meditates on the, on the law of God day and night and he's like a tree planted by streams of living water that flowers and produces fruit in any season. But we're reading about corpses piling up Lord sitting at Lord's right hands, and Melchizedek. You're welcome. (laughs) So why in the world of all of the Psalms did we pick this one? I'll admit to you, this is probably not my first pick, and yet there's something profound about this passage. You know what it is? This is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament of all the Psalms, short Six verses, but it is quoted and referred to more than any other psalm in the book of Psalms. Now, if you remember, the book of Psalms is a prayer or a song book for the Jewish people, especially during the rule or during the the time of Jesus's day. It was a way that they could worship God and express their heart to God and process their suffering, process their praise, their confusion. Their joy, literally every human emotion is covered in the book of Psalms. And whereas most of the Bible kind of takes this particular trajectory of God speaking to us as his people, the book of Psalms actually is godly people experiencing the full gamut of human emotions, but directing that back up to God. And so this particular Psalm is the most common one that was on the hearts and minds of the people of the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? Now, it might not seem like that big a deal, but the title, A Psalm of David, is an incredibly big deal. Why? Because if this is a psalm written by someone who is observing David, someone in his court, talking about David being the Lord to the right hand of God, or Yahweh, then it's a a psalm with messianic overtones using David as an example, but if it's written actually by David himself, it's David the king looking to one who's greater than he. It's explicitly about the Messiah and nobody else. And so it says a psalm of David, and even more, Jesus quotes and says, hey, David wrote this about me. See, in Matthew chapter 22, after a couple days of verbal sparring with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, as they each try to attempt to take their shot to to discredit Jesus and to stump him and bring him down a notch or two, Jesus asks them this question pertaining to Psalm 110, and it absolutely stumps them. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, "The son of David, the son of David." Everybody knows that. That's who the Messiah is, right? We all know that. We're Jews. We get this. He said to them, "How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, attributing this psalm to David?" The Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet." If then David calls him Lord, how is it that he is? How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So Jesus uses this very passage to shut up his enemies, and they are stumped, and they don't oppose him anymore. They're like, let's kill him. We obviously can't beat him in a debate. So David is writing about the Messiah. Everybody knows this, and yet David sees the Messiah is so much more than him. We're going to see three main themes emerge in this psalm. We'll look at each in turn. First, Jesus is the exalted Messiah. We see that in verse 1 and in 5a. Second, Jesus is the conquering king. We see him in verses 2 and 3 conquer and verses 5 to 7 conquer. And third, right in the middle of the psalm, Jesus is the great high priest. And because he is all these things, the exalted Messiah, the conquering king, and the great high priest, he is enough for us so we don 't have to be; we can rest in who he is and what he has done. Now, let me show you the structure of this particular psalm because it 's interesting how it 's laid out you 'll notice in the in the red boxes in chapter verse one and in verse five a we see that this Lord, this Messiah is an exalted anointed one, the future king of Israel, and that he will be exalted by God. We see in the blue boxes that this king will conquer, he will execute justice on the enemies of God, and then right in the middle, in verse 4, we see that he is not just a king, but he's also a great high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Just wait, that's going to get interesting. So, let's dive in. First, Jesus is the exalted Messiah. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Now, sometimes when we translate the the Hebrew into English, it actually obscures or confuses the meaning more than it needs to. And in particular, the word Lord is is often derived from a variety of different Hebrew words. Sometimes it's Yahweh, the personal name of God, the one that was so revered that often Jews would, would not say it for fear of making it irreverent. Others, like Adonai, were also translated Lord. Now, here's where the English Bibles give us a little bit of a clue. Anytime you look in the scriptures and you see Lord in all capital letters, like we do in verse 1, that's actually the covenantal name Yahweh. That is God, the title that he gives to himself. But if you see it and it's not all capitalized, like the second version, that's actually Adonai. Okay? So the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. And then down in verse 5, the Lord, Adonai, is sitting at your right hand, being at Yahweh's right hand. So Adonai here in the text refers to the Messiah, whereas Yahweh refers to God, the covenantal God. Now, why is it so significant that Messiah, or Adonai, is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. To sit at one's right hand is to be given a place or a title of extreme honor, to be exalted, to be seen almost as equal to or on par with Yahweh himself. Don't miss this, because in the New Testament, to sit at my right hand becomes so commonplace that they're actually quoting this over and over again. Even in the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest Christian creeds, we talk about Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Almighty. This is equating a human being, Messiah, with God, Yahweh himself, a place of extreme exaltation and honor. And so much so that it becomes the central point of the very first Christian sermon ever preached. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends on the Apostle Peter and he gets up and he tries to explain what in the world is going on, he quotes Psalm 110. Listen, this Jesus God raised up from the dead, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's poured out the Spirit on us. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, so he's quoting directly, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he can't be any more explicit that Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus. Okay, some of you guys went to Sunday school. You know the answer is always Jesus, right? Peter is saying that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he is greater than even David himself. Because David didn't ascend to this lofty position, he just saw it and wrote about it. Not only that, but the author of Hebrews picks up on this phrase to show that Jesus is superior to the angelic beings as well. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Answer? God's never said that to the angels, but he has said it to Jesus. And so Jesus is superior to even the glorious angels that we see. Now, in this privileged position, how he acts is as our savior and our representative. Peter, once again in Acts chapter 5, preaching another sermon, this time to the high priest who was one of the ones who condemned Jesus to be crucified, says this, quoting Psalm 110 again. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree... God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, do you catch the the irony here? Yahweh's response to Jesus is the exact opposite of humans' response to Jesus. When we see Jesus, what did we do? We killed him, we crucified him. But when God sees Jesus walking out exactly what he had for him to do, God exalts him and gives him that place of privilege and honor. In fact, in part, the reason that Jesus was crucified is because he quoted this very psalm and applied it to himself. Let's just back up a little bit. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is on trial before the high priest, verse 63. And the high priest said to him, Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, no more games. Tell us if you're the Messiah or not. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So both quoting Psalm 110 and a passage from Daniel. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has utter blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answer, He deserves death. Jesus claims that Psalm 110 is about Him and that the next time the high priest sees Him, He will be seated and exalted at the right hand of God in his majesty. And the high priest says, kill him, crucify him. So not only is he Lord and Savior and our representative, Jesus being the Messiah, being at the right hand of God means that he serves in a mediating role even as we speak. The apostle Paul in the book of Romans quotes Psalm 110 in chapter eight, verse 34, when he says, who is there to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is using the hand of God, who is interceding for us. So Jesus is using his privileged, exalted position at Yahweh's right hand to do what? To intercede for us. To advocate for us. That, my friends, is amazing. We've got friends in high places, don't we? Jesus is the perfect lawyer. So no more lawyer jokes, all right? Jesus embodies that role perfectly as advocate and lawyer interceding for us. I could go on and on about the significance of this phrase of Jesus interceding for us, but we will in verse 4 when we talk about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'll say one more thing, though, because it leads to the next point. What is the Messiah's posture at the right hand of God? What is he doing? He's sitting. He is seated. This is a massive truth for us to grasp. To be seated was to be at rest. You sit down after the work is done. And not only is he seated because the ultimate work is done, he's seated and he's propping his feet up on what? His enemies. Like Jesus is in the recliner, and what are his feet resting on? Those that he has vanquished. This is an incredible picture of dominance and power, isn't it? That Jesus is seated and the work is done and he kicks up his feet on the broken, shattered enemies of Satan, sin, and death itself. They are crushed and and are beneath his feet. I mean, think about the humiliation of being used as an ottoman or a footrest for somebody. Come here, I need to pop up my feet. I mean, that is a picture of utter dominance and disrespect and humiliation to your enemies. And that's the picture that we're given of Jesus the Messiah after his finished work. Is that beautiful? So here's what you do. The next time, after a hard day's work, or just a day's work, when you sit down and you want to prop up your feet on something, remember Jesus did this to his enemies. Every time you click that lazy boy back, remember Jesus has already defeated Satan, sin and death, and because of that, we reign with him. That's good news. Especially when you're feeling his attacks. Know that you're feeling the attacks of a defeated enemy. Especially when you feel the grief and mourn at a funeral of someone who is a believer. Know that death has been defeated. And this is not the end of the story. Jesus is the exalted Messiah. Because of that, I don't have to exalt myself. And neither do you. Let that sink in. Isn't that freeing? You don't have to get yours. You don't have to be recognized. You don't have to say, look at me, look at me, because there is one who is exalted, and he is enough, so it frees you to not have to be. You want to talk about living differently in the context of your work if you don't have to get the credit or on the athletic field or in the classroom where you're so secure and what's already been accomplished for you that even if you're overlooked, it's all right. God knows, and we win in the end. Takes a lot of pressure off, doesn't it? It allows us to respond differently to unfair criticism or being overlooked. We gotta keep going. Jesus is the exalted Messiah, so we don't have to be too. Jesus is the conquering king. We see in verses two and three and five to seven, a picture of the messiah's conquest the lord yahweh sends forth from zion your mighty scepter the messiah's mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies the messiah's enemies your messiah's people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours so so yahweh sends forth from zion which is jerusalem the heart of the messiah's rule Messiah's scepter, or his ability, his ability to reign, his kingdom. He will bring the the, the reign and the kingdom of the Messiah, which is the rule and the kingdom of Yahweh. Isn't that a little confusing? It seems like he's just switching people back and forth and back and forth. Whose reign is it? Is it Yahweh's reign, or is it Messiah's reign? Yes. They're one and the same, are they not? And don't we see this in the ministry of Jesus? I only say what the Father has given me to say. I only do what the Father has given me to do. The power that the Messiah brings and wields is Yahweh's power, and he is bringing God's rule and reign back to the earth, which is an upside-down kingdom. This kingdom of power we would expect to utterly obliterate and crush enemies, and yet the picture we see of Messiah's rule is different. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Your people will freely choose to follow you. They will be clothed in holy garments. And what are they doing in these holy garments? They're fighting a war. Now the next section in verses 5 to 7 does not evoke images of Jesus' time in the Gospels, but rather more apocalyptic images of Jesus in the book of Revelation when he returns. The Lord is at your right hand. There it is again, that exalted place. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The book of Revelation, in particular, chapter 19, we are given a picture of the conquering lamb making war on the enemies of God, utterly crushing them once and for all. In Revelation, we see Jesus, the exalted, glorious one with a sword flying out of his mouth, riding on a white horse, and his people are behind him clothed in what? White linens. Now, I'm not a soldier, but I'm pretty sure most soldiers don't dress in white linens. It means that this battle is an utterly different kind of battle, that it is the, the lamb that is conquering. It is Jesus who conquers, and his people come in light, and in holiness behind them fighting the forces of darkness. And just as in Revelation, after Messiah conquers, he ushers his people to a profound rest. So that in both of these conquest sections, verse 3 and verse 7, they end with some rather obscure, confusing images of water and dew and refreshment. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. We don't really talk like this anymore, do we? What's going on? At the end of the battle, there's usually a sense of rest and refreshment, a large exhale that the battle is done. You drink water and refresh yourself. I think that's what verses 3 and 7 are indicating. After executing his judgment on the nations and the enemies of God, he, along with his people, will refresh and rest themselves. In the dew, in the water. Now, when we read about the judgment of God like that, anybody get a little uncomfortable? I mean, these are some vivid images filling places with corpses, shattering chiefs. We read about that stark of judgment and, and we get a little uncomfortable At some point, we all have to make a decision when it comes to God. Is is our God going to be comfortable and fit inside the box that we want him to fit in? Or does God get to define himself himself? Does God get to tell us who he is and what he is like, meaning then that the passages in the Bible that deal with aspects of God's character that are a little bit more uncomfortable to us in our modern-day culture, do we just kind of gloss over those and say, no, God's just a God of love and peace and acceptance and mercy? No. That's not what real relationship is. See, if we only take the parts of God that we like and we recast it into some idealized image of ourself, in that scenario, who's God? We are. And guys, we make lousy gods. We really do. We're impotent when it comes to actually helping. How much rather would you have a God that is actually true and real And in those moments where he makes you uncomfortable, you bend and you move, realizing that the problem isn't with him. It's probably something of you or your understanding. See, I think there's a few reasons why this kind of judgment makes us feel uncomfortable. The first, frankly, is that most of us have lived our entire life in a place of privilege and safety and not the entire world has. I didn't say all of you. I said most of you. For the most part, our culture and our country is a place of safety and prosperity. It's far from perfect. We all agree on that. But most of us don't go to bed each night wondering if an army is going to come and pillage and plunder in the night. We've never had that thought before bed, but many people do around the world. We haven't seen family members brutally killed and all kinds of other atrocities. Let me just say that the cultures that tend to minimize the justice and the anger and the wrath of God are often very safe and prosperous cultures, not ones who have experienced the sheer terror of human evil and long for justice. And so when we read about this, it shocks us because we don't have a, a level of emotion that equates with that kind of language. Maybe some of you do. Our God is a God of justice. Second, justice in this world is often rickety at best. We get it wrong all the time. We often hear of stories of someone wrongfully convicted 30 years ago, and new evidence came to light, or a new testimony came to light, and we realized we got the wrong person. And so when we read about this kind of expansive judgment, we're like, "Eh, I don't know, maybe we'll get it wrong. But brothers and sisters, God is not like that. He sees and knows everything that is to see and know. He understands all of the nuances of everything so that his justice is perfect and he never misses it or gets it wrong. Third is that something deep within us often realizes that while we long for God to bring justice on our enemies, we don't want him to bring justice on us even though that's what we deserve. See, a lot of times we, we think about our sin being against God and primarily against God. And that is a biblical ideal. that God, our creator, is the most offended party when we sin. But, but sometimes if we only look at the horizontal aspect of our sin, we for, or sorry, the vertical aspect of our sin. There we go. Gestures matching. The vertical aspect of our sin, we forget that our sin devastates and destroys those horizontally around us that sin has massive repercussions in other people's lives, and that matters to them, and it matters to us. And so when we hear about God's justice falling on wrongdoers, on the one hand, we're like, yes! On the other hand, we're like, no. <laughs> Which is why the gospel is such good news. Because Paul, when writing about the cross, said, in one moment, God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That God does maintain his justice, that there is no one that will go unpunished who has done any amount of wrong. No evil will, will just get swept under the rug. But for those who put their faith in Christ, he bears it in your place. He takes the justice and the wrath of God. He drinks the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs. And he pays your debt. Thus, thus getting your forgiveness. That's good news. And he does so without minimizing the damage done or the hurt you've caused, so that everybody gets their justice too. See, we, we say we want a God without judgment, but we don't really. And so we need to allow the Bible to reorient our categories so that when we see that the king will judge and will conquer, that that actually is good news. But you know what? It's not just good news that Jesus is the exalted Messiah or the conquering king. We see also that he is the merciful and great high priest. In verse 4, we read, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Can I just acknowledge that verse 4 is weird? I mean, we don't normally talk about priesthood or, or sacrifices. We certainly don't know much about Melchizedek, but here we have in the very center of the Messianic Psalm this blaring idea that Jesus is a priest from the order of Melchizedek. And so we have to ask questions like, who in the world is Melchizedek? Why should I care? And what in the world does that have to do with me and Jesus? I'm guessing these were not burning questions on your heart this morning when you got up to go to church. I really hope he touches on Melchizedek today. But would you just kind of indulge me a little bit as we just dive into the Bible and nerd out a little bit? Because this is incredible. I'll show you. Melchizedek is an obscure figure from Genesis chapter 14. He is mentioned once there and once here, and that's the only time he's mentioned in the Old Testament. He's not mentioned again until the book of Hebrews does all of this reflection on him in multiple chapters. He's mentioned in the story, and the story goes like this, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot was living in the city of, of Sodom, and they were sacked by, by foreign kings that raided and pillaged and conquered the city and, and captured Lot and his family along with the rest of the people and, and were basically, they were kind of the spoils of war. Abraham gathers some, some men and, and to, to go and fight them and to rescue the people and to, 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 reap, to bring back the goods, He does, and God is with him, and they finally conquer these these foreign kings, and they bring back the the spoils of war. They bring back the women, the children, Lot, and his family, and so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah come out, and they say, we want to give you all of the spoils, but we'll take the people back, because that was kind of the customary payment for doing this kind of thing, and Abraham says, no, I'm good. I don't want anything from you. You take your stuff. You take your people back. I just went and rescued my, my nephew. And in the middle of this story, right in between uh, them offering this and, and him saying no, there's this guy by the name of Melchizedek who comes and appears and it says that he's the king of Salem and that he is also a priest of the most high God. And get this, Abraham, like Father Abraham, the patriarch that all of the Jewish people came from, recognizes Melchizedek as a superior, recognizes this priest-king as someone who he, uh, he needs to honor, and so he allows Melchizedek to, to pray a prayer of blessing over him, and then Abraham, get this, he actually tithes or gives a tenth of everything that he has to Melchizedek, recognizing him as a superior. And then the story just keeps going, and we don't hear about him again until this particular moment in Psalm 110. What in the world is David talking about? Well, remember, as David is writing this psalm, he's reflecting on some things about the Messiah, that he is a conquering king, an exalted Messiah, but he also recognizes, I think rightly so, that the Messiah needs to be a priest, someone who can mediate between us and God more than a king. He is a king and a priest. Now, remember, this is happening on the other side of the Mosaic Law. And in the Mosaic Law... The priests came very clearly from the, from the tribe of Levi. That's where the whole temple system, sacrificial system comes in the book of Leviticus or Levite-idicus, right? That it was Aaron's sons that would be the priests and that no one got to be a priest if he didn't have that kind of lineage. But also, the kings didn't come from the tribe of Levi. They actually came from the tribe of Judah, David was the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He is The kingly lion comes through Judah. The the priesthood comes through Leviticus, and they don't mix. In fact, David, recognizing that one of Saul, his predecessor's downfall, the moment where God says, no more, was when Saul himself took on both of these offices. Do you remember the story? Now, Saul's got a bunch of stuff going on where he's a little bit crazy, and he's not following the Lord very well. But when Samuel is delayed in offering the sacrifice before going into battle, Saul takes upon the priesthood himself, and he offers the sacrifice, and God says, "Uh uh-uh. And so David knew, I don't get to be a priest. I even mentioned like building a house for God, and God said, no, you're not going to do that. David doesn't get to be a a priest, but, but the Messiah needs to be more than just the Davidic line, the Davidic king. He needs to be a priest as well. And so as David, I think, is reflecting on this, he's like, where have I seen that before? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. He 's a, he's a priest of a different order. He's a king who is a priest. We need a priest, king like that. that 's what Messiah will be. Now, if you do a little digging into Melchizedek, which is what the author of Hebrews does, I told you we 're going to nerd out for a while. Stay with me. You see that there is no genealogical record for Melchizedek in the Bible so. The speculations are all over the place as far as who this guy actually is. Some think that it's actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't actually agree with that. We don't know who he is, but we know that, the, that Jesus is like him in some way. So that's why I don't think it's that, but it could be. Some people believe that. The name Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness, He is the king that brings righteousness. He is also a king of a city called Salem. Salem comes from the Jewish word shalom, meaning peace. And so here we have the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And oh, by the way, based on the description, Salem is actually the early form of the city of, anyone to guess? Jerusalem. So here, the king of Jerusalem, who is also a king of righteousness and a king of peace, acts as a king and acts as a priest. Does that sound like anybody that you've heard of? Jesus. So the book of Hebrews picks up on this and spends like four or five chapters reflecting on this reality. Hebrews 4 and 5, 7 to 10 On how Jesus is the true and greater high priest who can sympathize with human weakness but has overcome. How Jesus is not just the high priest of the order of Melchizedek but he is the perfect once for all sacrifice for sins. He is the temple. He is the veil. He is the one that all of the Old Testament Levitical system pointed to. Now I have time to dive into all of that but maybe that will be bonus content this week. The point of Psalm 110 here is that Jesus isn't just the exalted Messiah. He isn't just the conquering king. He is also the perfect high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He is a mediator so that we can now boldly approach the throne of God with confidence that we will be heard. Hebrews 4.14 says, so, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe The high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he has faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help when we need it most. Brothers and sisters, you do not have to be enough today, because Jesus is. Because he is the exalted Messiah, you can praise and worship him rather than seeking your own glory and praise. Because he is the victorious, conquering king, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to win. He already has. His victory is secure. And so every time you put your feet up, be reminded of Jesus vanquishing his enemies and your enemies. He wins, and because of that, we who are with him win as well. And finally, because Jesus is the true and glorious high priest, we can now approach God with confidence, knowing that he is indeed interceding for us and will continue to do so. That's good news. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, the story of Stephen is told. He's the first Christian martyr. And after preaching this sermon and people are enraged at what he says, basically, you killed God, you killed Jesus, you stiff-necked people. It wasn't the most seeker-sensitive sermon. As they are enraged and picking up rocks, this is what happens. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in a place of honor at God's right hand. The last thing that he saw before he died for this wonderful Savior was this exalted position at the right hand of God, the Almighty. But you're like, Pastor Kyle, in Psalm 110, he's seated. But here, when he appears to Stephen, he's standing. What's going on? This is an illusion, but also letting us know a little bit about the circumstances. Yes, the work is done, and yet he is standing because he's got work to do with the one who is about to die. He is standing, interceding for him in that moment of his death. Isn't it interesting that the first Christian martyr, the thing that comes to his mind, the vision that he is given by God is the very same vision that David was given a thousand years earlier. Brothers and sisters, the Bible fits together as one unified story. It is about Jesus and he is enough for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it fits together and it stirs in us a heart of praise. Help us to love and serve Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, knowing that he is enough so we don't have to be. It's in his name we pray, amen. We're gonna close our time in...